0: Yeah, if you have a Bible, open it to Revelation chapter 2 or turn it on if you have a phone. Uh, We're going to look at the seven letters to the seven churches, and we're going right after it. So last week, Jeff introed the book and said, this book is all about Jesus. And it was a a great intro, turning our attention to Jesus. Now we have these letters to the churches. So these churches that we're going to hear about. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, they're all churches in what's now modern Turkey. Now, if I came to you and I said, they're not a random order. It's not just like random order of churches. Uh, If I said to you, uh, to the churches in Omaha, Des Moines, Iowa City, Davenport, Chicago, what would you think? You would think cities in an order, right? They're all cities along Interstate 80 from west to east. So that's essentially what we have here, is these letters going around to each of these churches, someone delivering them, and last week, blessed are you, if you read the words of this, of this vision of, of John here, and so Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. Let's stop here. This is an overview of what what the letters sound like. There's a pattern to this. So the pattern is Jesus wants the churches to know who he is, And for each of the churches, he reveals something different about himself. So he wants you to know he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the A and Z. What he's saying is, I'm the eternal God. And he's kind of pointing us back to chapter 1 each time to to draw attention to a certain aspect of him himself. Or he'll say, I'm the God who has a double-edged sword coming out of my mouth. What's that mean? The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, Right. He's he's saying, I'm the God of truth. I'm the eternal God. I'm the all-powerful God. And he says, I hold the seven stars with my right hand. And we know the seven stars are the angels, the messengers over these churches. And then he says, I walk among the seven lampstands. And already some of you are like, great. Here we go with revelation symbolism that I can't understand. What are the lampstands and why are there seven? Okay, here's the thing. Lampstands. You know what a lampstand is, right? It's a stand that holds a lamp or a light, right? Now, we can remember this from uh, Sunday school, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? So, we've got this little light of mine, uh, Matthew 5. What is that a reference to? You are the light of the world, a city on a hill can't be hidden. Jesus is saying, hey, church, you guys are the illumination of God to the world, and I'm walking among like my body of Christ, my light of the world, and I'm looking at you, and I'm examining you. So do you guys ever have this, this thought? We were in a staff meeting, and, and one of our, our staff was kind of expressing their frustrations about something about Veritas. Do you guys ever do that? Like, could some, you see something going on, you're like, hey, could somebody do something about this? Because this is really annoying. Yeah, you guys ever have those thoughts? I do. Like, I wish someone was in charge around here. Like, this is a problem. What's going on? Somebody do something. We all feel that way, right? Because we care. We care about the church. It matters to us. And so there are things that bother us. Guess what? Jesus has those thoughts and feelings as well. And what he's saying to the church is, hey guys, I care and the difference between me and you is that I'm in charge. (laughs) I can actually exert my authority and tell you what you're doing wrong. And so here's kind of the big, big idea this morning. As we look at this opening to Ephesus is kind of the form for all seven churches. And here's the thing that you can write this down. No one cares about the health of the church more than Jesus. That should come as a great comfort to us. Because trust me, whatever your feelings are about the church, Jesus cares more than you do about his church and about the health of it. But here's the question. If you wanted to assess the health of the church or even the health of your own spiritual life, how would you go about doing that? What's your your measuring rod? How, How would you judge spiritual health Would you do it by, if we were like the elders, like is Veritas healthy? How could we do that? Would we say like attendance? How's the crowd? Is the crowd an indication of our health? What about budget? Giving, how how are budgets doing? Are we making budget? Is that how we judge health? What about, are we teaching the Bible? Is that our barometer of health is just, is truth being preached? What about, how excited we are in worship. How many, what percentage of hands raised this morning? What percentage of, of loud worship among the people of God? It, is that a good indicator of health? What about how we love the poor in our city? Would that be the ultimate judge? How, how would we do it? What, what do you say? We just make it up? No. Thank the Lord. He has told us because he walks into these churches and he judges the spiritual health of the churches and he tells us what he considers healthy and sick. And I think there are three things that he cares about. So long as we're talking about the body of Christ, it is his body, uh, using this body motif, let's go with Jesus cares most about our head, our heart, and our hands. Our head, what do we believe What are the teachings that we know and believe? Number two, our heart. How about our love, our passion? Where's our heart and our hands? What about our obedience and our actions? Those are the things we're going to look at. Let's start with our head here. Let's go to verses 12 through 13 of chapter 2. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Again, drawing attention to he is the truth. So what we're about to hear has something to do with this aspect of who Jesus is. Look at verse 14. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, let's stop here. If you are new to the Bible, and even if you're not new to the Bible, you might be very confused right now. Because I don't know when the last time you've read Numbers chapter 22 through 25, some of you are like, yeah, you're going to have to give me a refresher on that one. I don't, like, just just do this if you're like, I haven't read that in a long time or never heard of that. Number, just come on, head shake. Like, I'm, dude, I'm seeing it all over. Okay, so let me get you caught up. The Nicolaitans, there's a lot of speculation. We don't know exactly what that teaching was, but we know for sure what the teaching of Balaam was. Let me explain it. In the Old Testament, There was a king of Moab. His name was Balak. And Balak was terrified of the Israelites because they're going through and they're taking over the land, right? He's terrified of them. And so he goes to this prophet named Balaam. And he says, hey, Balaam, I need you to curse those people. And Balaam says, I can't do that. I actually can't curse them. God won't let me. But I'll tell you a secret about how to destroy God's people without even having to lift a finger or a sword. Here's how you do it. Let me, let me tell you a secret. Okay, here it is. Their God hates idolatry and especially sexual immorality. So here's what you do. Bring in some of your cult practices and just kind of mix it in with their faith And make sure that you entice them sexually, with sexual immorality, which will be super easy. Because just have them marry a bunch of unbelievers. Like, get them to fall in love and and just kind of intermarry and, you know, have sex with each other. And, I mean, that's, that's easy, right? So just do that. And God will judge them for you. And God will punish them. And then you'll just destroy them. But it will be God that does it. Isn't that brilliant? If you're Satan, right? A great way to destroy God's people. Guess what? Jesus rolls into the church. This is a couple thousand years after the teaching of Balaam. And he says, you are letting Balaam into your church service. And you're letting them confuse the people of God. Think about these first century churches scattered all around uh, modern day Turkey. These little, maybe they met in houses. And they had these itinerant preachers who would travel from house to house, church to church. And they would, you know, they probably didn't have full paid staff that could give their whole attention to studying the Bible and preaching the Bible. So they had these guest preachers and these churches... For here, Pergamum, they would let this this pastor come in and preach, and they're like, wow, that sounds really good. You mean I can, like God is okay with my sexual sin? That's awesome. We like that. Can you come back next week and teach us more? Here's the first question. Are you spiritually healthy? Let's do a head exam here. Do you believe what the Bible teaches or what you want it to say? That's the question. To judge the spiritual health, you have to start with your head and what you believe to be true about God and his word. In September of 2021, America was polled. They they did a couple thousand people. This was a the Barna Research Group, so legit, legit study. And they polled the Americans and they asked them some simple questions. Question one: Are you a Christian? Sixty eight percent of Americans at, and so that's one hundred seventy six million people, say in America, yes, we're Christians. And then they asked them another question: How many of you are Bible believing Christians? So of that one hundred seventy six million people, fifteen million said, we're Bible-believing Christians. Of that small subset of Bible-believing Christians, listen to these statistics. It's hilarious and sad at the same time. 52% of those people said, humans are basically good. 39% said, the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, and purity. And 33% of those so-called Bible-believing Christians believe in karma. Like, what's with karma? (laughs) Yeah, anyway. some like kind of Eastern religion mixed in here about reincarnation. And you get what's coming for you in the next life. Okay. Here's the point. Based on that, the church in America is not healthy. Can we just say it? We are the church in Pergamum. Now. I want to ask another question that I think really pokes even harder into us. What does the teaching of Balaam sound like? Do you recognize what this teaching sounds like? This week I was reading, I I read a bunch of different news sources and I came across this editorial in USA Today and this editorialist captures the teaching of Balaam. It was perfect timing for us. And what I want to do is I want to read what this, uh, this woman says. And I want to see if you hear the teaching of Balaam. Are you ready? It's like thinking cap time. Put on your thinking cap, tune your ears, and try to see if you can filter this teaching that's about to come to you. I'm going to give you some teaching here from this editorialist. She's writing about Tony Dungy. He's an outspoken Christian. And she, he said some things she didn't like. And she says this in kind of a rebuke to him and Christians like him. Tony Dungy, like so many others, has used his faith as justification for discriminating against LGBTQ people. Claiming homosexuality is antithetical to his Christian beliefs. But that's nonsense. If you are a Christian, you are supposed to follow the teachings of Christ. Not the humans who interpret them or the churches that have taken license with them for their own game, Christ's own words. And nowhere in the Gospels Does he say anything about homosexuality or gay marriage? What he did say was to love your neighbor as yourself and to treat the most marginalized and vulnerable among us as you would him. If you believe the gospels, again, Christ's own teachings, not others' interpretations of them, can you honestly say he would approve of policies that ostracize and otherize gays, lesbians, and in this case, transgender and non-binary people, that he would praise making them feel as if they are not worthy of belonging. If you say yes, then you've heard what you've wanted to hear, not what Christ actually said. He preached love and acceptance, embracing lepers, prostitutes, and the hated tax collectors, and he had no use for those who proclaim their piety while using it to demean and mistreat others. Jesus preached love and acceptance. What do you say to that? How how can you refute that? Like, she's right, right? Jesus preached acceptance and love. And she says, you know, you should follow the actual teachings of Jesus and not the people who are interpreting them, right? Don't you agree with that? I actually agree with her. You should follow the teachings of Jesus, which happens to be Revelation chapter two, and chapters two and three. Very, very explicit teachings to us this morning. So let's take her advice and follow the teachings like you can read it right here to the church in Pergamum, who has accepted the teaching of Balaam, has welcomed this teaching. And what was the teaching? It was a kind of teaching that made people feel good about their sexual sin. And we like that teaching because naturally, there's sexual things that we want to do that God has said not to do. And it's not unclear what the teachings of Jesus are. When you go back, think about the Israelites. God was very explicit about what he considered moral purity and what he considered sexual perversion. Have you ever read Leviticus? It gets very detailed (laughs) about the people and animals and things that are off limits. And Jesus believed all that teaching and he taught that teaching. It's not unclear what Jesus teaches. And some of you might be like me where I read this and I'm like, oh, great. Here we go again. A few weeks ago, I'm teaching on Sodom and Gomorrah, and now I've got Revelation 2 and 3. This kind of feels like a little bit of a hobby horse, doesn't it? Well, guess what? It's Jesus that keeps bringing this up. It's Jesus that keeps standing in front of us like, hey, I, I want to talk about this. Hey, in case you weren't listening, To the Sodom and Gomorrah thing, the the fire, the sulfur from heaven, like that's how it's all gonna end. I wanna bring it up again in Veritas. Here's the thing if you are someone who is caught in sexual sin, we don't hate you, we love you. You have come to the one. Safe place this morning. The church. Because this service is going to end with communion and whatever it is that has entangled you. This morning is your morning. Jesus wants to free you, He wants to forgive you, He wants to wash over you with cleansing. It's beautiful. We don't hate you. Jesus doesn't hate these people. He hates the teachings of these people. He hates evil, and that's a good thing, right? And it's good for you to also hate false teaching that hurts people and sin that hurts people. And the sin that's hurting your friend or yourself the the sin that in the end is actually stealing your humanity and the humanity of other people that turns them into objects of your pleasure. No, the Christian sexual ethic treats people as image bearers and doesn't want to violate other people sexually because we know that that person bears the image of God and we want to honor them and serve them, not use them for our selfishness. I know that probably most in this room would not describe, would not say that uh, the letters of the LGBTQ best kind of represent their sexual sin, but who of us in this room doesn't struggle to some degree with sexual sin? And we have to ask the question, How have we allowed the teaching of Balaam into our own minds where we have justified our sexual sin? Well, it's really not that bad that we live with each other and we're not married because we're kind of married in our hearts, right? We love each other. Or maybe this great TV series that you're watching, it's got, sure, it's got a lot of nudity and... uh, People having sex and stuff like that, but, but it's kind of—I mean—the the character development and the oh man, these actors are amazing. It's great. Like, next thing you know, you're being entertained by this, or you're a couple who's sitting together watching this, or whatever it is, and you've justified it, and you now are following the teaching of Balaam, that's saying, hey, God. God loves, a, he loves cinema. He loves a great movie. He's, he's good with all this, right? Just, no big deal. But just let it in to your life. Dating, to you're pushing the limits sexually with your, the person you're with. Chapter 2, verse 16. So Repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's time to come to Jesus. If your head is healthy, if your doctrine is strong, what you believe about God and the gospel, it's time to move on to your heart. And for that, we're going to go to the church in Ephesus. Revelation 2 verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. Again, verse 6, we'll jump down because he commends them again. You have this going for you. You hate the the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This church is healthy in their doctrine. They teach the Bible. And this church in Ephesus, they would have loved the last like 10 minutes. They would have been like, totally, get them. Go get them. I love it when we talk about this stuff. Because people need to hear this. Oh, But look at verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'm going to take that lampstand away because this little light of mine is not shining. If all you are doing is preaching the Bible And it's just head knowledge for you. It's just a set of propositions to be right about. This is a person who can do a whole lot of damage, a person with a Bible in one hand and a hard heart in the other. That person turns this thing into a dangerous weapon. And what I'm telling you is Jesus is asking us to examine our hearts right now. So are you spiritually healthy? Point number two, heart. Let's ask this diagnostic question to diagnose our health situation here. Is your faith a point to argue or a person you love? When you think about your faith, is it just a set of facts that you are right about? Christianity may, for this person, have become an argument to win. You're obsessed with people who are wrong and you feel like in the comment section you need to get in there and you need to tell them they are wrong because you're right and you know that. And all these people are just wrong, right? Jesus says in John 5:39 to the religious leaders. He says, "Here's the thing. You guys diligently study the scriptures, Like, you and your expository preaching, you and your verse-by-verse preaching, you diligently study this book, the Bible, and you think that by them you possess eternal life, but these are the scriptures that testify about me. Do you see this error of the church in Ephesus? Ephesus? How do you know if you've lost your first love? Have you become the kind of Christian who's just kind of irritable, grumpy, miserable to be around? Your connection group is just hoping that topic doesn't come up because you're just going to go off. Right? Maybe you're someone who used to share the gospel. And now you share your politics. In college, Jesus was the issue. And now the issue is the president. Or can you believe this? Congress person. The issue for you used to be about hell. And now it's about global warming. And we need to let everybody know they're wrong about all this stuff. And we need, to, like, we're right. Veritas, it's time for us to wake up and do the things you did at first. And I don't know, usually, what happens when you become a Christian is these worship songs are moving to you. I would encourage you go back and do what you did at first. Find the worship songs that you listened to in the early days of your faith. And like for Jeff, it was Sandy Patty. I don't know. Maybe you came to know Jesus in the 80s and Sandy Patty. Go back and YouTube Sandy Patty. Maybe for you in the 90s, I don't know who it was. Passion, you know. Go back, Chris Tomlin, David Crowder, whatever. Go back 10 years ago. Phil Wickham. I don't know who it is for you, for me. Keith Green. I got to go back. First love. And get on your knees. Say, oh God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Forgive me for making this just a set of facts. Let this land on good soil. The last church. I love this church, that I want to highlight the church in Smyrna, verse 8, right to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who is dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. This church in Smyrna is awesome. They are one of the two churches that doesn't receive any rebuke from Jesus. They only get encouragement. And Smyrna was, uh, this town was called the crown city of Asia. It was the most beautiful in all of Asia. It's modern-day Izmir. When I was in Turkey, I so wanted to go there. Beautiful port town. It's it's uh, just glorious. It was a center of science and medicine. Uh, It was intensely loyal to Rome, so they had these these temples uh, of cult worship, and the emperors would come through and visit. You guys, this prosperous city was a very difficult place to be a Christian. 50 years after this was written, Polycarp was martyred in Smyrna. This church was small, and struggling and persecuted and poor. They weren't making budget. Attendance was sparse. But they were healthy. They were a healthy church because they were following Jesus. They have not wavered in their doctrine. They have not wavered in their love. They have not wavered with their hands. What are their hands? Their actions. What they were doing for Jesus. Obedience. Even in suffering. It's time for a hands check, church. Do you persevere in obedience to Jesus when it's hard? And along with this question, I want to ask this question. Have any of you shook hands with a dairy farmer? Anyone? Or a construction worker? It's like shaking the hand of a, like, sandpaper, right? Rocks with sandpaper, you know, like, like what are those? Is that skin? I mean, those calluses? Are you wearing gloves? No, just calluses. You know what? From hard work every day, in the bitter cold, in the heat of summer, Every morning, hands that are working, toiling. Christian, it's time for a hand check. Are your hands soft like a baby because you have been busy serving yourself? Other people have been serving you. Or are your hands calloused because you have been serving Jesus? You have been working for him. You have been persevering in love. You have been serving the people in your connection group. You have been serving your neighbors in your community. One of your neighbors is sick, and you've been bringing them meals and encouraging them. You've been bringing uh, someone who can't make it to church. You've been picking them up every week and showing up. A lot of miles on your car because you've been busy serving. Is that you? Are you like the church in Smyrna? Healthy doesn't mean you won't suffer. If you're healthy, you will suffer, but you will endure. That's the message of Revelation. And as it turns out, enduring is so worth it. Because look at verse 10 be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. You're gonna die once, that's your physical death, but then there's the second one, and that's the spiritual one. Heaven or hell, church, don't compromise the teachings of Jesus. Don't lose your first love. And don't stop obeying and serving Jesus. And I love how Jesus goes from speaking corporately to the church in Smyrna. Now he gets individual. He gets very specific to the one who has ears. Let them hear what the Spirit says. He takes it from corporate. Now he's pointing to you. The person sitting in your chair Do you have ears to hear this morning? Let's pray together. We're going to close with communion. And I just invite you to come. To come to the table. And this table with the juice representing the blood of Christ that was shed for us on the cross the bread is the body of Christ it was broken for us I just invite you to come there's tables all around the room and just as the worship team leads us I invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to examine your heart to examine your mind to examine your hands What does the Holy Spirit want to say to you and just come as he examines your heart and come and just let the blood of Christ just wash over you and forgive you. Jesus, come. Jesus, come.